There are nearly 2 million women veterans who served and deserve the best care anywhere. VA is dedicated to meeting the unique needs of all women veterans. VA offers comprehensive primary care and women's health specialty care. Women veterans who are interested in receiving care at VA should call the Women Veterans Call Center at 855-VA-WOMEN or contact the nearest VA Medical Center and ask for the Women Veterans Program Manager. Visit www.va.gov slash womenvet. Good morning, everybody. I am Tim Lawson, your host for This Week at VA. This is episode number 40. It's so awesome when we tick over into another set of episodes. I might have to see if I can arrange something fun for episode 50. Today's episode features Mark Burgess, who is the National Adjutant at Disabled American Veterans. We'll also learn how you can use an accredited veteran service organization to help you with your claim, and we'll feature our veteran of the day who served in Korea. But first, I want to play audio from an interview Secretary Shulkin did with The Takeaway on WNYC. He talks about the modernization of VA and providing emergency care to veterans. Veterans Affairs Secretary David Shulkin is one of the few cabinet holdovers from the Obama administration. Shulkin is a private medical doctor who left his practice to become undersecretary of health for the VA, and he was named by President Trump to head the organization with a rare unanimous confirmation from the Senate. Shulkin heads the VA at a time of reform. Two major wars have produced a flood of veterans coming home and needing care for the physical and emotional scars of battle. In 2014, long waiting lists at clinics caused some veterans to go without care. I think it was the perfect storm. Not only were we seeing large numbers of service members returning from active conflict with very severe injuries, both physical and emotional, but it was also the time that the Vietnam veterans were just turning on average about 65 years old. And so we were having a large influx of both older veterans requiring more care as well as our younger veterans requiring more care. So that was one issue. The second issue is, is that we have failed to give people who work in the VA the proper tools and systems that they deserve to take care of our veterans. So a lot of what I'm doing is bringing best practices from the private sector into the VA, modernizing the VA systems to give them the tools to be able to handle the types of situations that they're faced with every day taking care of veterans and providing the right amount of resources so that we can meet the demand required upon us. Right. So those are some of your reforms that you're attempting to bring in. And you just mentioned the word resources, which means money, which Congress has increased. But I want to talk about sheer numbers that the VA is dealing with now, because so many young people have come home from major wars post 9-11. A 50 percent increase in veterans qualifying for care between 2007 and 2013. And the total number of inpatient visits uh, from 63 million to 92 million. You talked about resources, but the, the fact is that that there's an enormous increase, really a tidal wave of veterans who now need care. Right. Uh, As we were fixing the access issues in VA, I let everybody know that our wait times would actually probably go up before they go down because we had ignored that demand on our services for quite some time. And what we learned is as as we made more appointments available, more and more people were coming to the VA to get services. 
we've seen 7 million more appointments this year alone than last year. So uh, we are just now reaching the point that I think that we are addressing the true demand of the VA healthcare system. $500 million uh, Congress has sent your way to deal with this influx of veterans who need care. Is it going to, is it going to need to be more? The problems in the VA are not solely a money issue. And I do not believe that we should be looking for large increases in funding for the years that are coming in the future. I think what we're trying to do is to modernize our system so we can become more efficient, more productive, and make sure that we're providing the right services by implementing best practices and modernizing the current systems we have, not necessarily more money. Mr. Secretary, you recently used your authority to change some of the rules there at the VA when it comes to emergency treatment for vets suffering from PTSD. And we had a veteran and an advocate on the show named Christopher Goldsmith. He works for the Vietnam Veterans of America, and he's an Iraq vet himself uh, who got a less than honorable discharge because of a suicide attempt. He missed a deployment. But he had this to say. The secretary has gone as far as he can without top cover from President Trump and without the support of Congress. We need everybody and and we need the average voter to get engaged on this issue and say that every single veteran who has PTSD deserves access to mental health care. And Mr. Secretary, he added to that that while he supports the reforms, he called it putting a Band-Aid over a gunshot wound. How do you respond? Well, I admire his uh, passion on this, and I think that he's got a lot that makes sense in his comments. Our top priority is to make sure that we're helping veterans, and the biggest clinical priority is reducing veteran suicide. And if you don't allow people access to health care and to behavioral health care services, I don't know how you're going to begin to address that. I was tired of waiting, and I just acted, and as of July 5th, any veteran who has another than honorable discharge just needs to come to the VA and we're going to provide them those emergency mental health services because it's the right thing to do. But I agree with Mr. Goldsmith that we need to do more than that. And do you have a sense that that appropriations bills, VA funding bills are going to attempt to fund this this type of expansion in mental health care? Well, Secretary, uh, I'm simply not going to allow us to pass bills and not provide us the resources to be able to carry them out. And so I see this very much as a partnership with Congress. We've had a very good relationship in being able to match what they're asking us to do with the resources that we need. That's why I believe our budget this year for fiscal year 18 has gone up and it allows us to be able to carry out our mission. Uh, Mr. Secretary, one of the other key reforms that Congress decided on was letting veterans, especially those who live in rural areas, maybe not close to one of your VA hospitals, go to see a private doctor. This was a controversial reform. There's some fear that it could undermine the VA if patients start going elsewhere for their care. How is it working out so far? And do you have a fear that it could undermine uh, VA facilities if patients can just go see private doctors? This was a program that Congress acted on initially in the 2014 wait time crisis. And in fact, I think that the program has been successful and achieved the results, which is to allow veterans that weren't able to get care in a reasonable way to be able to go into the community. And we've seen millions of veterans now who would have had trouble getting care, being able to get care closer to home. And I think that's a good thing. And I support the continuation of a program like that. My goal is to build a system that takes advantage of the very best that VA has to offer.
veterans and the best that the private sector in the community has to offer veterans and to create a single integrated experience, a seamless system of care that where the private sector works with VA. That is in no means uh, moving towards privatization of VA. To the contrary, I believe that VA is a essential national resource. It's tied to our national security. It's important for us to honor our commitment to our veterans to keep a VA strong and robust. David Shulkin, Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Mr. Secretary, thank you. Thank you. Today's featured interview is with Navy veteran Mark Burgess. Mark is the National Adjutant of DAV, that's Disabled American Veterans. Mark's going to talk to us about joining the Navy, transitioning, and getting involved at DAV. Enjoy. Okay, wonderful. Mark Burgess, National Adjutant of uh, Disabled American Veterans. Sir, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Mark, we start every interview with the same question. My audience is probably sick of me introing this question with that intro, but we start with the one thing we all have in common, and that's joining the United States military. Uh, bring us back to that day for you. Sure. I, uh, I have quite a bit of uh, military history in my family. Uh, I have three uncles that served, one in the Army, two in the Navy, uh, two Navy service uh, men made careers out of it, one retiring with over 20 years and one with 30. I have uh, three great uncles that served. One was a fighter pilot in the Korean War in the U.S. Air Force, and the other two served in World War II, one in the Navy, one in the Army. Uh, and I have a, a cousin who served as a chaplain in the Air Force here more recently and was in uh, Afghanistan and who is now a chaplain for the for the VA. Um, so as a Young 17-year-old senior turning 18, I got some really good advice from my great-uncle, the U.S. Air Force uh, veteran, who recommended that I uh, have him, let him help me get into the Air Force ROTC there in the local college of my hometown, University of Southern Mississippi. And like most 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, I didn't take that advice and decided to not do that. Uh, and instead go it, about it on my own and go to college uh, in the local university. And so I was working and uh, uh, taking student loans and going to college and have obviously a living college life. After about two years of that, I realized that uh, he had given me real good advice and rethought things and did uh, uh, enlist in the, in the Navy. Um, I was assigned after boot camp. I was assigned to the, USS Normandy, a uh, pre-commission in Bath, Maine. Um, later went back to Maine and to Portland for dry dock, beautiful, beautiful country uh, in Maine. And uh, USS Normandy was stationed in Norfolk uh, for a while and then to the home port in Staten Island. Uh, we did participate in uh, Operation Desert Shield and uh, Desert Storm. Um, so that's basically I was in I was in the Navy for uh, uh, five years, and uh, so that's my my history of how I joined the Navy. Sure, 
Uh, is there a is there an experience that you had in the Navy or a story that maybe you recall often that maybe uh, is a good representation of your of your time in something uh, that maybe you consider the epitome of your service? Well, I guess there are lots of uh, lots of uh, experiences. You know, uh, you know, fellow servicemen and women that I met that uh, are dear to my heart still today. Um, I guess the one story that I tell the most often uh, was during a desert storm. And, of course, at that time, none of us knew what type of war that was going to be. Uh, we were on the ship. We were in the Persian Gulf. And uh, it was about 2 a.m., and I was on guard duty. And, um, of course, we all had our gas masks on our side because of the nature of that war and what everyone thought might be the weapon of, of use by Iraq. And uh, the chemical alarm goes off. And, you know, in the Navy and all branches of the military, you do a lot of drills. Of course, before every drill, there's an announcement that it's a drill. Well, there was no announcement. So here the chemical alarm goes off, and we all have our gas masks, and most, most or many of the crew on board were sleeping. And so everyone gets up, and I'm in one of the spaces I'm, I'm – uh, um, visiting as a guard, and so take off my gas mask. And of course, we had these canisters that were from World War II. Uh, so we'll go, everyone goes about taking their canisters off, and we realize quickly just how uh, hard the metal was. And uh, <laughs> during World War II, and it was very, very difficult to get these canisters open. And uh, thankfully, before we actually got them all open and uh, the filters onto our gas mask. It turned out to be a, a false alarm. One of the ships in our battle group, uh, the sensors, the outside sensors had a malfunction. So obviously it sent immediately the, uh, the message to all the other ships that there was a chemical alarm. And so that, that probably one minute seemed like an hour. <laughs> as, <laughs> because, you know, there was so much fear of, chemical warfare back then yeah yeah you're right um and then it, you you got out in 1992 is that right yes so what what prompted uh what prompted your discharge was that uh you were you just ready to to leave the military or what was the situation there i had a medical discharge i had been on uh limited duty for about a year um and uh um, my last, I was on terminal leave. So my last month and a half or so, I relocated from Staten Island to Philadelphia, uh, to go back to school. Um, do, if you, do you believe that, uh, if that was a situation that you would have stayed in longer? Yes. Yes. I had had plans to going back to my great uncle and the great advice he gave me. I had, uh, uh, had started the discussions with my command to, uh, uh, go back to school and be, uh, finish a degree and become an officer in the Navy. Uh, at that time, it was a program where if you were under a certain age and you had so many credit hours, college credit hours already at a certain GPA, with the command's approval, you could go back to school and trans transition to be an officer. And I had started that process, but like anyone that's uh, had any sort of injury or illness in the military, as soon as that happens, everything's on hold. And I could see from what the doctors were telling me that uh, if I 
if I did come off of temporary duty at some point, I would have been beyond the age that would have made allowed me to qualify for that transition to uh, officer duty. So uh, that was out of the not an option for me uh, out of my sight. So I evaluated the decision along with the treating physician and decided that uh, uh, discharge was the the thing to do. Yeah. I see that you uh, you've you've two bachelors and a master's. Uh, did you use your GI bill to get any of those? I did. Um, you know, my transition out of the military, moving from New York to Philadelphia. The one thing I knew I needed to do, uh, because uh, I think transition assistance program was just starting up in the military at that time, and so one of the pieces of advice they gave me was, as soon as you get to where you're going, you need to go visit the VA um, to check on your benefits and to let them know about your, your injury and your uh, condition. So I did. When I got to Philadelphia, one of the very first stops I made was to a vet center. And as I walked through the door, an uh, older gentleman came out to greet me. And he said, what can I do for you? So I told him why I was there. And he, he had a number of different forms that he helped me fill out for disability compensation. And uh, it turns out he was a, a volunteer for the DAD, the volunteer service officer. His name was Irv Meadows, World War II veteran. And uh, so he helped me, and that was my introduction to both filing a claim with the VA and my introduction to the DAV. Yeah, <clears throat> that's great. Um, during your transition, uh, you know, we know a lot of veterans experience um, – you know, a type of emotional crisis in their first year or two out of the military. Did you experience anything like that? It was tough because uh, I relocated to the city. I didn't know anyone. Um, I needed to restart uh, my life and my, my direction and, and goals and work work towards what my future was going to be. And I can say without a doubt that the VA was there for me. Um, I remember my voc, re, voc, uh, voc rehab counselor, Dennis Best. Uh, who was a Vietnam veteran, double amputee, and, a, and uh, he, uh, I, I still remember the passion that he showed to me as an individual, as a veteran, and he wanted to help me get back on my feet. And um, I uh, kept in communication with Dennis over the years, um, and uh, he helped me through both rehab, helped me with my schooling there at the University of Pennsylvania. And so it just, there were others, but just to name one individual, that saw me for who I was uh, and wanted to help me as a person and as a veteran, that would be Dennis Best, the book we have counselor there in Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, and then how, when, when do you think you've, you found your renewed purpose, something that a lot of veterans are uh, strive for that are in, in search of um, when they leave the military? Did you find that immediately in DAV when you started there? You know, I did when, when I, when I met Irv Meadows, Right, and he helped me on my claim, and he asked me, "Did I want to be a member of DAV?" Honestly, at the time, I didn't know what the organization was or stood for. I knew that this this World War II veteran helped me out, and I said, "Of course, I'll join." Um, so I was a member for about two years before I became an employee uh, of DAV. And in fact, I was going to school and working at the VA there in Philadelphia as an insurance specialist, um, and uh, enjoyed that employment and. But I, I, being a member of DAV, I didn't have a lot of time to go to the chapter meetings. I went to school some during the day, some at night. 
And I always felt a little guilty about that. So when I got one issue of the magazine, the DAV magazine, it talked about uh, recruiting members. So I thought, you know, I went to the VA. I'm a veteran. I'm a member of this organization. I think I can spend some time recruiting members because I can do that when I have time. And uh, so I walked down to the, the DAV office to uh, talk to them about that. And uh, the, the supervisor at the time listened to me and he said, okay, yeah, we can help you with getting out of those materials. But what do you think about coming to work for um, the DAV? And at the time, I wasn't really all that interested. I was working for the VA, but I was going to school and thought I would have some opportunities there as well. And I talked to several individuals whose opinion I uh, valued greatly. And uh, they said, you know, the DAV, uh, their mission and their purpose and, you know, uh, their integrity as an organization, you might want to give it a closer look. So I did and decided to go for the interview and they flew me into Washington and and I was so impressed with the organization and the individuals uh, that I met that I decided that that's the direction I wanted to go to go in. And, you know, uh, getting into the DAV as an employee, and I obviously became much more involved as a member at that time as well. That's when it kind of hit me that uh, this is a community, given the fraternal nature of it and the professional nature of it, uh, this is a community that uh, that I really want to be in, and it wasn't just the professional side and just the job and the gratification that that I got from doing the work. It was the fraternal side of the organization, right? We have nearly 1.3 million members, and uh, there's a place for everyone in DAV, no matter how you want to contribute to the veteran community. Uh, whether it's a volunteer driver, whether it's a volunteer service officer, whether it's a, a legis legislative um, advocate, or so many other ways to contribute. But I really felt a sense of uh, camaraderie, the closest thing to the military that I think uh, is, is is available out there. So that's when it hit me when I when I was hired and became more involved as a member in DAV. Sure. Um, I'm sure many of the, I'm sure most of the members in the audience are familiar with DAV, and we've definitely um, alluded to uh, what they do. But for those of the, for those that are unfamiliar with DAV, can you just give a a, a quick, um, a brief explanation sure. on on the mission? Sure. Uh, DAV was uh, created in 1920 as World War One veterans came home, and at that time there was no VA. There were a few services available, but they were disjointed. They didn't communicate with each other. They weren't well-funded. So injured veterans in that day, in 1920, uh, really had a very, very hard time reintegrating back into civilian society, trying to find a sense of normalcy, trying to find jobs and training. Very, very difficult. So this group of injured veterans got together and said, I think we can do something about it, and they created the DAD. Uh, and then in 1932, uh, Congress chartered DAV as the official voice of uh, injured and ill veterans. And since the very beginning, DAV's uh, mission has been uh, legislative to make sure that you know our government uh, takes care of the men and women who serve. So we have a we have a close eye on Capitol Hill and the laws that are being passed and the budgets for the VA make sure we do our best to make sure there's an adequate budget to take, 
take care of veterans and their families. And then, of course, our service programs. In the very beginning, we we uh, trained uh, individuals to help veterans maneuver the different uh, places in which to gain uh, their benefits. And those two programs are still our two primary uh, programs, even though there are legacy programs, they remain today um, our primary uh, focus. Of course, we always also have a employment department um, that we've had. Uh, we're coming up on uh, three years, and we're happy to say that during that three-year period of us uh, working in the arena of helping veterans obtain jobs individually, we've helped facilitate uh, almost 25,000 job offers. Uh, we have a voluntary services department where we have a lot of opportunities for people to volunteer. Our biggest initiative there is a partnership with the VA, um, where uh, last year our volunteer drivers helped uh, veterans with about 670,000 free rides from their uh, from their local communities to the VA medical centers and back home. And um, of course, we do that with vans that we purchase and then give to the VA. And the VA takes them into their pool of vehicles and takes care of them from a maintenance perspective. And we provide the volunteers to drive the vans. Um, in our service department last year, uh, our service officers, uh, which we have roughly 300 professional um, employee service officers, and then we have another roughly 4,000 volunteer service officers. So, in uh, that and those uh, efforts, uh, we helped veterans with almost 300,000 claims that were processed by the VA, resulting in just over $4 billion of benefits going directly to veterans and their families. So in some, I guess those are our main initiatives. And what do you um, – I mean, you just listed amazing, a lot of things that DAV uh, does with and for veterans – what do you think? Um, what's the right way to ask this? What is what is something that DAV offers for veterans or does on behalf of veterans that you think maybe goes unnoticed or isn't uh, highlighted enough um, in uh, in DAV's reputation? Well, I think we're most known for our service work, helping with claims. Yeah. Um, our volunteer work is very significant, and I mentioned the transportation network. But the thing maybe that goes unnoticed is, uh, I mean, those are initiatives that the national organization uh, oversees and tracks. Of course, I mentioned our fraternal ranks. So we have, you know, 52 state departments, and we have over 1,300 chapters all over the country. Well, they have their role as well, and they are more community-based. So we have chapters out there where the members do a whole host of volunteer initiatives for veterans in need uh, in their communities um, that uh, sometimes go unnoticed. Um, sometimes the local media picks up these things, and, and we, we try to share it on social media and other ways. But just to give you an example, down in Tennessee, there's a chapter that's developed a relationship with Home Depot, who has a grant program. So they'll go out in their community and identify uh, veterans who have some sort of need in their home uh, uh, that Home Depot uh, products and services might be to help. They'll file for the grant with Home Depot, get some funds to pay for the materials. Home Depot usually provides a person or two to help do the work or oversee the work. Um, so in Tennessee, 
we've got these individuals that they found uh, some older veterans who just maybe in the last couple of years, uh, their disabilities have uh, uh, found themselves in a wheelchair. So their house has carpet. Oh, if you're in a wheelchair, that carpet needs to come up. It's very hard to get around your house if you have carpet. So they go in, they rip up the carpet, put hardwood floors down, they build a ramp. And, uh, and then, of course, there can be roof work. There can be all sorts of things that go on. But that's just one example of, of our local members being com you know, community partners with Home Depot, with the VA, and with other entities to identify and take care of unique needs in the community that, are, that they would know about. Yeah. You said uh, 52 state ranks or 51 and 52 D.C. and Puerto Rico? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then if you can briefly describe what your responsibilities are as uh, national adjutant uh, there at DAV, what's, uh, what are your, uh, what's your scope? Well, I, I oversee all of the operations on the professional side and the paternal side. Um, of course, I have two executive directors, Gary Augustine there in Washington, D.C., and Barry Jasinowski in uh, our headquarters in Cold Spring, Kentucky. And they have their responsibilities. I obviously keep in close communication with uh, both of them. And uh, um, on the fraternal side, uh, as you can imagine, with nearly 1.3 million members, 52 state departments, and 1,300 chapters, there's a lot of communication back and forth that needs to go on a lot of partnerships. Um, so in some, that's what I do. Uh, uh, obviously, in any organization, you have to have a team. Teamwork and communication is just critical. And I will say that the team we have at all levels in DAV, uh, everybody, everybody believes in that. Um, so we just have a great team environment where everybody's on the same page. Uh, we have a strategic plan. We focus on that. We review that on a regular basis to keep us all moving in the right direction. I just feel blessed that I stumbled on the DAV. I mean, I walked into the VA Vet Center that day, saw this World War II veteran and DAV member Irv Meadows, and I am, I think of Irv Meadows often, and I tell the story often of how I came involved with DAV, and it was uh, just a blessing that I walked in that vet center that day. Yeah. Two quick questions. You can answer this in, in 10 seconds or less. But um, what's, this, what's a discipline, skill set, talent, whatever you want to call it, that you, that you learned uh, in the military that's contributing to your success at DAV? Lead by example. Who is a – give me a veteran or a veteran uh, organization that really has you excited right now about what they're doing. Our national commander, Dave Riley, whose personal, in it, personal initiative is to right the inequity of caregivers. He is a quadruple amputee, our first quadruple amputee commander, our first Coast Guard commander. And uh, his wife, Yvonne, has been by his side uh, for over 20 years now since he was, he was injured and lost all four limbs. And she has been a champion for him. And she is entitled to no benefits while those caregivers uh, post 9-11 are entitled to an array of much needed and deserved benefits. Yeah. But that is just an, that is an inequity. And our commander, Dave Riley, uh, that is his issue this year. And he's working very, very hard to honor support. Uh, and uh, we feel like we're making some progress. But uh, the fight is hard. 
because, uh, you know, there's always dollars involved with benefits. Um, but this is a right or a wrong that has to be righted. So that's my person, Dave Riley. I dig that. Uh, and then lastly, if anybody's listening that is familiar with DAV, they're inspired by the mess- the mission, um, of course, anything in life requires a first step, and that's usually the hardest part for people to get through. What's the first thing people should do if they're interested in joining DAV or inquiring in their services? I think they should go to DAV.org, take a look at our website. Uh, I think it flows well, and I'm going to have to uh, uh, browse around and see what we're about. But I think our information there. Uh, we'll lay out all the services that we provide, how to find those services. If anyone needs help with their uh, claims for uh, disability compensation or education benefits or anything else, right on the right on the front page of DAB.org is an area where you can enter your zip code, and that will take you directly to the contact information of one of our national service officers. That's the number one thing. If you need our help, we're there for you. Wonderful. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your service to our country and your continued service to veterans over at DAV. Thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this podcast. My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. And when he needed it, he turned to VA for treatment. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. Now, This is my moment to honor my country, my family, and their legacy of integrity. It means everything to me. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. Together, we're building real friendships with veterans and their families, starting with world-class care. Every day, we're helping veterans with wounds both seen and unseen. From our groundbreaking research in PTSD to our advances in physical therapy, I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. DAV is just one of the accredited veteran service organizations that can assist you with your claim. If you go to explore.va.gov and click on Disability Compensation, you'll see an option to Apply Now, or you can contact an accredited VSO. Clicking on the second option will bring you to an eBenefits page that will show you how you can use one of the VSOs to assist submitting your claim. If you enjoyed what Mark said and feel confident in his organization, you can simply check them out at DAV.org. Today's Veteran of the Day is Army Veteran Jennifer McNeil. Jennifer enlisted in the Army in April 1976 and became a dental assistant. Jennifer served in Korea where she served as the NCOIC, that's the non-commissioned officer in charge, uh, of one of the dental clinics. We thank Jennifer for her service. To read Jennifer's full write-up and to nominate your own Veteran of the Day, visit blogs.va.gov. That wraps up episode 40. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. If you've been enjoying the show for some time, we would be grateful for a nomination at podcastawards.com in the government and organizations category. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash veteransaffairs for more stories from our community. If you have a question you'd like to have addressed on the show, please send them to us newmedia at va.gov or tweet them to us using hashtag VA podcast. I'm Timothy Lawson signing off.